Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we tell you what America's thinking. Or this week we might also tell you a little bit about what Canada's thinking with the latest polling stories in politics, news, tech, and pop culture. This week's top lines, Joe didn't show to the Democratic debate. The pundits hand the win to, to Hillary Clinton, but the focus groups give the win to Bernie. So who really won the battle of the Dems? And will the polls change at all? Also, last week, Margie and I joined Chuck Todd's show, Meet the Press Daily. We talked a little bit about Hillary Clinton's switch on TPP, how do voters feel about trade and Hillary's change of position? Also, the race for speaker gets a little bit crazy on the Republican side. We'll take a look at the data behind why nobody wants to be third in line for the presidency. Online surveys are the newest, hottest craze in L.A. We'll take a look at some shifting ways that the media is trading online survey, treating online survey methodology. And we're just a few days out from the Canadian election. We'll talk to an expert on what's happening with our friends up north. Computer science is the new top major for women at Stanford. What does the research tell us has kept fewer women from pursuing STEM careers up to this point? And last but not least, Ford did a survey of European children on the things that bother them the most about their parents on a road trip. The top two things are the two things I spend my whole day in the car doing. We'll talk about those at the end of the show. (laughs) So this week, last night, as of today, we're recording on a Wednesday, and yesterday was the Democratic debate, and obviously a big night in our house and a big crazy week in our house. Um, And uh, I am amazed at two, a couple different things. First of all, I saw Hillary Clinton turn in a very solid performance. She was very clear. She was very smooth. She was uh, warm. Um, I, I thought she, you know, she obviously has a handle on the facts. She didn't make any kind of gaffes that you sometimes see that she sometimes makes and that others can make. Uh, yet, and, and I think a lot of other folks, insiders, the media watching agree, but every other uh, measurement of where voters are, what viewers were, whether it's the CNN focus group that they did, the Fox focus group that they did, uh, online sentiment, all of it points. Fusion did a focus group as well. Oh, they did. Fusion did another one. Um, and they found the same thing, that their respondents, Bernie Sanders' respondents, I, every they came in swing voters, I think, and switched during the course of the debate. So I haven't seen a single press outlet that said, you know, Sanders crushes it, right? All of them say the reverse. All of them say, not that Sanders did something wrong, but that Clinton was solid. They, you know, people, you know, that was the Clinton that people have been waiting for. I mean, she was confident and, and, you know, nailed it. And, you know, she was 
brought the party together, all of those things. I mean, you consistently see that. Maybe a couple stories like 538 saying, okay, let's not overstate it. Let's not overdo it. Or we shouldn't be surprised that she would have done so well. But no one is saying that she did a bad job or that Sanders won. But every single, you know, Lund's focus group, every most of the groups that they came in, uh, raise, uh, they raised their hand saying they came in, they were Clinton voters. And they said, okay, who are you voting for now? Far fewer said they were Clinton voters. They all shout out, we're voting for Bernie Sanders. CNN Focus Group found the same thing where more than half of the group that they had at CNN said, uh, we're voting for Sanders. And I don't know. I don't know how those groups were recruited. I don't know if they were undecided or if they were leaners or not strong for the for the candidates. I don't know if it's because they were held in captivity. And so they just waited to the end as opposed to kind of just watching the beginning of the debate and then drifting off the way most people do because Sanders was weaker in the beginning. He was stronger in the end. So maybe folks forced to watch the entire debate felt he was stronger. Maybe, you know, maybe people just respond to uh, Sanders' singularity of message, his message precision, as we say, where he can continues to, to emphasize income inequality, which obviously people like. I, I don't know. What do you think it is? I think it's fascinating that what you see on the Republican side is now happening on the Democratic side as well, where the pundits walk away from the debate declaring a winner and all of the focus group data points the opposite direction. And so will we see the same thing happen in the polls on the Democratic side that we saw on the Republican side? That being, you know, on the Republican side, people would say, oh, you know, gosh, John Kasich put in such a great performance. And like he was, you know, nothing changed in the polls. Right. Um, And yet, you know, they would say, oh, gosh, Donald Trump, he made such a fool of himself. And then Donald Trump would go up in the polls, right? And 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 so it's it's not a perfect analogy on the other side of the aisle, but this disconnect between what the pundits and the journalists see when they watch these debates and the way that your sort of average voter is responding is fascinating. Now, at this point, we only have this – well, we have qualitative data in the sense of the Lunds focus groups, the CNN focus groups, the Fusion focus, focus groups. But we also have all of this fascinating digital data, right. all of this stuff about Google searches and Twitter engagement that really is – pointing to this idea that not only did Bernie Sanders not have uh, not oh well did he have a bad night no it seems like he may have had a pretty good night and the big moment that came out of this debate right was the moment when Hillary Clinton's emails came up and Bernie Sanders said the line um, the American people are tired of hearing about your darn emails. I think we can say, damn. I don't know. Well, We're rated as clean on <laughs> iTunes. I'm clean. being we extra careful. Be, we don't have to be that clean. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And – you know, people were like, oh, well, that, he, he gave such a gift yes. to Hillary there. But if you are dear listeners, if you have been listening to our show for the last few months, you will totally understand why Bernie Sanders did that. Because as we have said time and time again, the reason why people like Bernie Sanders isn't because they don't like Hillary Clinton. Right. It's not because they go, oh, her emails, I guess I'll vote for Bernie. That they, they choose Bernie Sanders because they like Bernie Sanders. And right. so, of course, like it actually makes perfect sense for him. To get the the email issue off the table, and because now if you're somebody who does like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, it's like it gives you more permission to be like, oh well, I really like I like the way Bernie handled that, right? And and it almost sounded and 
I don't think he meant it this way. I know it wasn't a rehearsed line, but it was almost as if he was exasperated, not just with the coverage, but actually with the story himself. I mean, that's the other way to kind of look at it. Like, I'm, I'm sick of your damn emails. Well, that's <laughs> how Republicans, by the way, fully intend to utilize this line in advertising, I can guarantee you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 however he meant it, it was clearly the, the winner of the night. And, and the fact that that's the clip as opposed to a gun clip, which obviously the gun issue was was his. Was right. his weak spot, and that was the beginning of the debate. And that, I think, is where he 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 didn't land that answer solidly enough for Democrats, and it wasn't crisp enough in terms of where he's been. Is he changing? Is he you know how does he answer the immunity question? He he wasn't as crisp there as he needed to be. That said, if the main story is the damn email clip, which is where. The Twitter spike engaged, um, you know, where Twitter mentioned spiked, then that's good for Sanders, I think. Um, but look at all this other di- uh, d- uh, digital data. Sanders uh, had a heck of a lot more new f- followers than Clinton over the course of the night. He had more mentions. He had more searches. Um, he also won the Google Analytics uh, survey. Um, and, it, you know, and he was there were basically only two other times throughout the night that he didn't have more search, the most searches out of anybody up on stage. Now, for some of that, and they mentioned this, they speci- they talk about this a little bit more clearly in the Washington Post story on this, which we always link to in our show notes. The fact that people were searching about Bernie Sanders doesn't mean they're going to vote for him. It just means, you know, he had to introduce himself. So while his hard ID has been growing over the summer, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, he, there's a lot of depth to his image, it compa- certainly compared to Hillary Clinton, who's been in the public eye for a really long time. So it makes sense that people are searching more for Sanders than for Clinton and searching more for Sanders than, you know, some of the other folks. I think Google search data is such an underutilized supplement to public opinion data just broadly because we are all honest with that Google search box, right? right. It knows our deepest, darkest secrets. I am terrified of the day that that becomes the oppo dump, like that, some, that like somehow your political opponent figures out your Google search history. And like Ugh. that, I mean, that, that will be the end times. But we... Uh, you know, I don't. It doesn't necessarily mean oh, somebody spiked in Google searches. That means they're going to spike in the polls. I mean, I think there was Google data that suggested at one point Lincoln Chafee had a little bit of a spike, but I think it was around his his kind of weird. <laughs> was it to see if he was truly a block of granite? <laughs> I don't. What? There we go. That's what I need to know. What were the Google searches about Lincoln Chafee? What did that look like? I mean, they must have been about Glass Steagall, right? I mean, I don't. Maybe. I guess. Or did it, is it? You know. I don't know. Or did Jim Webb really kill a man? Was that another Google search? I have seen a lot of lot of uh, buzz online of people trying to dig into this Jim Webb having killed a man story. The, the other thing that I think the, was, was fascinating to me as a Republican watching the debate was it was one of my first times getting to hear Bernie Sanders weigh in on a lot of this foreign policy stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look, there's some interesting polling that CNN has just done in a handful of these key early primary states in South Carolina, in Nevada. And they ask Democratic primary voters, you know, who do you trust more on a variety of different issues? And on things like health care, on things like the economy, um, you know, Clinton is ahead, but by a far smaller margin than she is on the questions on foreign policy. On foreign policy, Clinton is ahead of Bernie Sanders by huge, huge, huge margins. And I, I think – and this is, again, heading into the debate – I will be interested to see if those numbers move for him, that this is one of the first times he's had a chance to sort of, I think, surprise some people where he says, yeah, I opposed the war in Iraq, but I actually supported the war in Afghanistan. I'm not just, you know, somebody who's 
completely out there on the edge of plausibility as a commander-in-chief. Right. I, I thought that is an undercovered and kind of interesting element of this debate. And, and we see in this CNN polling, you know, on the question of who do you think is best to handle foreign policy in South Carolina, Clinton 62 percent, Biden 24 percent, which now that we know that Biden's at this point, seems fairly unlikely to jump in. Right. Um, I mean, you can assume you can allocate quite a bit of that to Clinton. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders at six percent. I bet you. It, and South Carolina, mind you, is not Bernie Sanders' strongest state, as no. we've seen in all the polls we've talked about thus far. Um, but I, I'll be interested to see if his numbers on the foreign policy issue move, because I think that that could be a big. X factor in all of this other electability. Can you see him as a commander in chief type stuff? Right, and and she clearly w- was winning in the polls in these same Nevada and South Carolina polls that CNN released in the run up uh, to the debate. She leads on electability. That's consistent with polling we've seen all along. They are tied or close to tied on things that are not issues, understands problems facing people like you or honest and trustworthy or even best represents the values of Democrats like yourself. I mean, you saw her try to connect to Democrats by saying I'm a progressive, um, try to bring in issues like uh, choice, uh, even when it wasn't a question. I mean, you saw her really connecting to those progressive uh, progressive values uh, last night. Um, perhaps in reaction to the fact that they are tied or nearly tied on a lot of those issues. And the other thing that I'll note um, is that, you know, the the reaction, the disparity between the press reaction to Sanders' uh, performance last night and how voters perceived it or how viewers perceived it is in maybe perhaps similar to the overall narrative where Sanders gets the biggest crowds of everybody. And, you know, with the same act that you saw last night with the same kind of performance and the same persona, the same focus on issues that you saw last night. That's what he that's, you know, that's the show that he has on the road right now. And it is bringing in the biggest crowds out of any single candidate, Republican or Democrat, despite a lack of, you know, fawning coverage on the right. Not that the right you know, from the media, not that the media is giving anyone fawning coverage, particularly these days, but they're not giving him fawning coverage. And despite that, he's getting these huge crowds for probably the same reasons that voters think that he's winning while the media think that he's not. Well, check back in with us next week. Certainly over the weekend, I expect a lot of media organizations to go into the field to figure out if the numbers are moving at all. Yes. Um, so we will be sure to check back in with you all next week and let you know what the polls seem to be showing and if this debate has changed the game at all. Yes, yes. And so before we move on to the Republicans, there's one issue that that there's a little bit of polling on it. It's something that had come up in the run-up to the debate. It was something that Kristen and I were asked on when we were on Meet the Press Daily with Chuck Todd, who demanded, insisted that we invite him on our on our show. So we'll have to do that. If you're listening, Chuck, you're welcome anytime. You can just breeze on in and we'll make uh, we'll pull up a chair in our uh, podcast closet here. Not uh, nearly as luxurious <laughs> no, as, as the, the set of Meet the Press. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> almost, almost. Maybe we need to hang up a couple photos or something. Um, it is the issue of TPP uh, where Clinton 
changed her position last week. Uh, or she said, you know, that her position. She had new information. She continued to learn about the issue. She changed her position in the run-up. Many thought that that ch- that change would hurt her. The fact that she was perceived to have a political motivation uh, to changing her position would hurt her. Would reinforce a narrative that she's politically calculating. Others say it doesn't matter if, as long as she ends up on the quote-unquote right side that Democrats want. And then what I said, which is, you know, I don't know how many voters are ultimately going to be moved by this one way or the other, really. And I think the data that we've seen so far on TPP suggests that that's probably true. uh, Google put out a pretty confusing chart, I think, of all the different search terms and issues, you know, in addition to the candidates being searched, what, what issues were being searched for. And TPP doesn't even make it onto the list. I mean, there are all these other, you know, Clinton emails, gun control, immigration, uh, abortion, even though abortion wasn't mentioned very much in the debate, health care, Black Lives Matter, and so on. Um, you don't see trade on there. Maybe that's they consider that part of the economy. I'm not sure. Uh, it doesn't even make it. Uh, war in Iraq, there isn't even another uh, foreign policy issue on there. But anyway, that said, TPP is not part of that. So it doesn't really rank as a, as a top search issue. Uh, the polls show that, you know, about half of uh, Americans say TPP is a good thing. Um, you know, generally speaking, you have uh, Americans, you know, a slight plurality, 42 percent saying, you know, free trade is a good thing. Democrats, only 52 percent say that. And that's just broadly speaking. That's not even uh, that's not talking about a specific uh, specific measure. But that's saying it, it, to me, that shows that you're not going to have a lot of Democrats who are saying this is a you know this is my issue, um, even in the broad sense of the term. If you're actually talking about a specific policy, then you're going to lose people who are not following the specifics. And we we always talk on this show about how there are you know policy areas like TPP where your average voter doesn't necessarily know a ton. But no fault of their own. They're busy people. But this is a complex issue. And so when you ask people, do you support or oppose TPP, you're you're not getting these like highly informed answers. What would fascinate me, free advice to any media pollsters out there who are listening, I would love to hear a question posed to Democratic voters. If you knew that President Obama supports TPP, but Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders oppose it, then how do you feel about it? Right. I would love to see how that shakes out. That would be fascinating to me. Right. Free question idea. Free question idea. That's an excellent question idea. I, you know, I don't even think you'd get that question might not would make it to the, you know, that would probably make it on the cutting room floor. Yeah. It, and, it, you know, you're still not going to get answers that are, you know, deeply steeped in knowledge of what trade promotion, you know, what, what this looks like. But it would give you a sense of like, What's the gut instinct of Democratic voters to side with Obama or to side with the 2016 field right. on this issue? Right. That would be very interesting to me. Right, right, right. So moving on to the Republican side, uh, a little sleepier I this know. week. We've been so caught up in Trump craziness that it's actually like a little bit relaxing this week. There's not a ton going on. Um 
the Fiorina bubble. Uh, I, I guess I don't know if you even call it a bubble, but it seems like Fiorina mania has calmed down somewhat. In the last two national polls, she's coming in at five percent, which is a drop from the eight, nine, ten percent that she was at last time we did our show. Um, but she still has the support of my daughter Lucy, who was not moved by Hillary Clinton. Those of you oh, who, who were not I was listening before about that, Lucy, who's going to be four in a couple weeks when she watched the Republican debate. Fiorina, that was her candidate. She's like, I like the one in blue. She looks like a preschool teacher. <laughs> and um, that was it. And then tonight, last night when I left the house, I said, okay, you're going to watch the debate with Daddy. I want you to see there's a woman running. I want you to see what you think of that woman, just like the woman we saw in the last debate. And then there's also Bernie, and that's who Daddy's working with. And I gave her all that whole long explanation. She looked at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm three. I have no idea what you're saying. And then um, apparently she said, which one's Bernie? Is that the one singing? That's who I like. <laughs> and then wanted to know why there was no more singing. So that's, you know, Cheryl Crow's her Lucy, candidate. <laughs> I was going to say Lucy, the only person in America who... Crow Cheryl Crow. Yes, um, she wants a Crow Fiorina ticket. <laughs> that that would be the end times. Uh, so if you, if you take a look at the Huffington Post pollster averages, you still have Donald Trump hovering up there. Um, the average as of uh, taping time was twenty eight point seven percent. Ben Carson at twenty point one. Um, Marco Rubio eight point nine, and Jeb at eight. Uh, then you kind of have a little bit of a drop off, Cruz and Fiorina, and then there's kind of the rest of the pack down there at below 4%. Um, the Fascinatingly, so CBS did a national poll and they wanted to find out what people think about these outsider candidates on some of the issues, economic decisions, illegal immigration, dealing with an international crisis. Um, and 50% of Republican primary voters nationwide said that they are very confident in Donald Trump's ability to handle economic decisions. And another 33% somewhat confident. So yeah. this... This, ladies and gentlemen, this is your Republican primary electorate right yes, now. Yes, yes. Uh, so moving on to, I think, the crazier item on the Republican side. Or did you— Wait. No, I wanted to say a little bit about Carson because Carson's been in the news a lot, right? So Carson, as you may know, has been slowly, slowly gaining ground. He's been popular for a long time. When we first started the show, he was like third or fourth. I mean, he was still pretty strong even then. And now he's been clear second for a while. And when we did the Bloomberg, Purple, St. Anselm's groups in New Hampshire and Iowa— uh, a couple of weeks ago, they, the Republican side wasn't public when we uh, recorded last week, but they are now. Um, we asked a lot about Carson and folks um, really found him very gentle and thoughtful, open minded. Um, they thought he was very trustworthy. He, he gives, I think, like a civil voice to some of uh, to some positions that folks have. Um, some of the things that the press has criticized him for, he's got a lot more press uh, critique and attention in the last few weeks for a lot of his comments. Those comments don't really upset Republican primary voters about Muslims and so on. Um, so so we heard some of that, too. And um, and, you you know, in fact, one person said uh, the best co combination for me would be Carson president with Trump in his earpiece. That was, that was someone's dream ticket. So, I mean, you really do see Carson and it's just going to see how this evolves as this um, kind of benevolent, 
you know, benevolent, uh, someone of good character, using that, looking to his character as a way to position himself as an outsider. They see him as an outsider to those, you know, craziness that's going on in politics, this gentle figure, even if he doesn't necessarily have all the details particularly correct, they can, they feel they can relate to him. What about Jeb Bush? You guys also had some findings around the extent to which his last name yeah. is playing a role here. Yeah, it wasn't such good news for Jeb Bush. I guess the best I could say is it's unchanged from where it's been. And, it, it, you know, his last name is, is not helping him. I mean, it's, a, you know, people feel like they've kind of had their fill of Bushes. I think that's not a surprise to anybody. It's probably not. It shouldn't be a surprise to him. What was interesting is that it's not – it's really just his last name and the fact that he hasn't pr- provided any sort of counter narrative. It's not this, you know, common core immigration stuff that people have been talking about or hand-wringing for a while now. Oh, he's too moderate on X, Y, and Z. And people don't even get to that. That's not their problem with him. And it's not just, okay, Bush, no, forget it. It's that what has he done besides be a Bush? And and the truth is for a lot of folks – it's not much. And remember, we're in states where he's been on the air. He's been on the air. His super PAC's been on the air. I mean, he is not unknown. I mean, he has spent millions. There have been millions spent on his behalf in television in those two states. And even with that and with whatever ground game he has, which I'm assuming is extensive, they still don't feel they have a personal connection to him. So it's really the last name sort of fills in the blanks that he still hasn't been able to fill in himself. Well, we'll see if the upcoming CNBC debate that's going to be hosted, I believe, in Boulder, Colorado, if that provides any uh, any big change in our field. The only other big thing I think is coming up that I'm excited to see how it shifts the poll is Donald Trump will be hosting Saturday Night Live in early November. So if you were thinking that Donald Trump may ultimately get bored with this and drop out, you've still got another <laughs> couple of weeks. Someone in my office posted – I will do anything to be in the – like, who can get me a ticket? I will literally do anything. <laughs> and and you, here's, what, here's what you I won't know do. is going to be true. <laughs> the ratings are going to be ridiculous. They're going to be ridiculous. And everybody's going to say, oh, my God, Donald Trump. Ah, oh, he's so horrible. But they're all going to tune in and watch. Yeah, I, absolutely. And then he's going to tweet, I'm the highest rated host. Yep. I'm better than Justin Timberlake. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it turns Get out excited, actually America. that the Democratic debate, just speaking of ratings, had the best, apparently had the best ratings of any Democratic debate ever, I heard, which is, I don't know, 11, 12 million, something like that. I, I may have that wrong, but they, um, but it's, it's apparently pretty high uh, for a Democratic debate. And they manage everybody's expectations saying, look, there's a lot of sports going on. No, <laughs> so we may not have the same ratings that we did for the Republican debate, but despite that, I think it was a pretty engaging debate. What we didn't say, I know we're going kind of backwards to the debate, but Democrats overall felt like it was a good showing of Democratic values and policy. Anyway, on contrast to the, you know, to the Trump debates, and I didn't know, I wasn't following him on Twitter. Did he do anything crazy during his? He said live he was going to live tweet it, and I thought it was fairly subdued. I I follow him on Twitter, and my feed was full of everything but Trump. So yeah, Mike Huckabee made an appearance, how, but I didn't see any. However, Trump. in terms of volume of like the most popular tweets about the debate. Donald Trump pretty much – Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders pretty much dominated that. The things their accounts were tweeting were the most retweeted debate tweets. Wow. So there you have it. So lots of people want to be president. 
<laughs> Nobody wants to be Speaker of the House. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. There's not enough money in the world. You could pay me to take that job. Oh, I know. That and was... we have the polling data to I thought we were going to break real news. Why? Kristen no. is running for Speaker. <laughs> I did read an article that said Newt Gingrich is considering it. I know. It, I saw that. Which would just be perfect. I mean, perfect. We'll we'll have to dig up some Newt Gingrich fave unfave data to talk about next week if that becomes more unfave. Of a, uh, a <laughs> if you would tease, it's all unfave. <laughs> it's been unfave. So for a very we long time. CBS did a poll um, of John Boehner's job approval rating, and so uh, Americans they they don't like Congress. Surprise, surprise. They asked if you people approved or disapproved of the way that John Boehner is doing his job. Here's what is nuts about this question. His lowest approval, or rather his highest disapproval, comes from Republicans. Yep. Not Democrats, not independents. Republicans. Yep. It's his own party. Uh, so you can understand why someone doesn't want to step into this job. 58% of Republicans to say they disapprove of the job John Boehner has done. 51% of Democrats, 50% of independents. I'm actually fascinated by the fact that Democrats are the most likely to approve of yeah. the job he's done. 29% of Democrats say they approve of the job John Boehner has done compared to only 23% of Republicans. Yeah, we see we see him struggling to try and bring the right flank, you know. This is well this is why he's like I'm out. I I hang out with the Pope. I'm done with this. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think what's more interesting is the fact that there's hardly there's not that much of a difference between Republicans, Democrats and independents. I mean, to think of a politician, if you were to say there is a politician out there in a visible role with hardly any difference in their approval rating across party lines, you think, wow, oh, my God. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, it's John Boehner. And it's overwhelmingly disapproval. And that's unfortunate. But I mean, the fact that it's it's so consistent across party lines is really quite striking. I mean, the fact that Tea Party Republicans and conservative Republicans, I guess those are both self-report and there's probably a lot of crossover there, are even more likely to disapprove of Boehner, 62 to 66 percent disapprove. That's even higher. It's still not overwhelmingly higher. I mean, it still doesn't reflect this what you see in Washington, which, you know, the right flank hates him and they just want to get him out of there and, you know, among Republican voters, those differences are a little bit more, a little bit smaller. Well, and, and the problem John Boehner has, too, is that he's in this trap where you can disapprove of the job he's done because you think he's been too unkind to the conservatives and hasn't fought hard enough. But you can also disapprove of the job John Boehner's done because you think he hasn't dropped the hammer enough. Right. So he's he's kind of, you know, getting it from both sides. And this is something that not just about John Boehner himself, but this Republican frustration with the Republican Party We've talked about on the show many a time. I mean, it's a large piece of why when you do an overall, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of the Republican Party? Do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of the Democratic Party? Democrats win on that nationally among all voters. But a lot of that is driven by the fact that Republicans hate their own party. Yeah. I mean, um, CBS has this uh, again. Uh, we saw it with Pew a few months ago. Uh, you have a third of Republicans unfavorable toward their own party compared to only 9% of Democrats who are unfavorable toward their own party. So fun times over here on the right. Let me tell you, fun, fun times. Whew. Yeah. Um, so anyway, moving on to Canada. So you guys asked for it and you are getting it. More Canadian election news. And uh, Kristen was traveling, but I did an interview with Nick Nanos of Nanos Research, a top Canadian pollster who broke it down for us, the trends uh, and what he's seeing. 
Nick, thanks so much for joining the pollsters today. If you could give us a brief intro of who you are and the polling that you work on in Canada, and then we'll get started. So I head up the team at Nanos Research. I'm the chairman, and we're the official pollster for the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper, CTV News, which is Canada's largest private broadcaster, and also Bloomberg News in Canada. Great. Fantastic. So we know you have an election coming up very soon, so we're glad you could take some time to talk to us. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in the polls. I mean, last we've talked about on the show, the three parties seem very, very close. Certainly, it it didn't seem like any one party would get a majority. Um, What's been happening recently in your tracking? Well, what we have seen in our tracking is the New Democratic Party, which is the left-wing party in Canada, which had been very competitive with the other two parties drop. So what was a three-way race is now turning into a two-way race between Stephen Harper, who leads the Conservative Party, and Justin Trudeau, who leads the Liberal Party, which is more centrist. So a drop for the socialists and what it's done, and the race is quite narrowed now. So is, and and that's true across all polling outlets, is everybody finding the same basic trend? Yes, all of the polls agree that the New Democrats uh, have dropped from the low 30s to the low 20s. So that's that's a definite consensus item among all the pollsters here in Canada. Now, did something happen in the race or is it a sense, uh, do you have a sense that people are doing some sort of strategic voting, like, you know, want folks on the left wanting to make sure they coalesce around the party that's most likely to win so they don't, quote unquote, have a wasted vote? Another, a number of things happened. First of all, Uh, The New Democrats released their platform, which promised to give $15 a day daycare to every Canadian family and to balance the books. And as soon as they released their economic platform, the numbers for the New Democrats, who are more progressive and left-leaning, actually started to slide. The other thing that's happened is as soon as the liberals, as soon as the centrist liberals started to pull ahead of the New Democrats, we saw a bit of movement and strategic voting as some of those New Democrats switched over into the liberal column in order to try to strategically vote and block the conservatives. Wait, so the New Democrats said we're going to provide, we want to provide $15 a day child care, and then they slipped? Yes, and well, they said they were going to do that and balance the books (laughs) at the same time. And I think for a lot of Canadians, it just didn't pass the smell test. Wow. Okay. All right. Um, uh, you had me. I was I was sold at fifteen dollar a day daycare, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to hear the rest of the sentence. But I guess Canadian voters are more thoughtful, perhaps than than I am. Um, so um, so tell us about the challenges of polling in Canada. Uh, worries about accuracy of polling that are plaguing basically everybody around the world. Response rates, cell phones, different languages, that sort of thing. Well, you know, Canada faces many similar uh, challenges to other countries. And right now, one of the biggest challenges is that there are so many competing methodologies. So there are IVR or robo-polling, like the automated surveys that are taking place. And then there are also the online panels, both opt-in and non-opt-in, and then the traditional polling. For Nanos, we're still doing calling with live callers, and we're calling land and cell lines. And uh, for all of the pollsters, they've been grappling with accessing cell line only households. And for us, about 25% of our sample is cell line. So uh, part of the problem are the competing technologies, and it's hard to compare uh, as a result. 
Um, do you have some of the same regulations that we have in the states where you can't use anything that may be considered an auto dialer on a cell phone that causes a variety of headaches, which we've talked about in the show in terms of how you define an auto dialer and phones, phone numbers that you thought might, were landlines are actually cell phones, but you can't, you can't use an auto dialer for a cell phone, so that makes the cell phone calling more expensive. Is that what it's like in Canada or – not yet, work? but we're, we're expecting that. There have been uh, proposed rule changes very similar to the United States, uh, but they haven't been enacted because we've had the uh, election kind of interrupt that process. But uh, the cost of reaching cell phone-only households is, is quite expensive, and, uh, but it's critically important because we can't skip you know, a big chunk of the populace and hope to try to have an accurate understanding of public opinion. Right, absolutely. In the UK, we learned during that election that almost every outlet does their polling online. Um, in the US, very little election polling that's released publicly for, you know, to predict an election is done 100% online. Maybe there's a piece of it that's done online, but very little is done totally online. Is there an increasing acceptance for online in Canada for election predictive polling? Yes, there has been, but the problem is is that the online polling has not been consistent in terms of its ability to predict outcomes, and there have been uh, times when you know online polling has actually predicted different outcomes, not just outside of the margin of error, but different outcomes than what was expected in the election. And uh, I would hazard to say probably about 30 to 40 percent of the polling that's released in Canada right now is online related to the election, and probably about another... 30 to 40 percent is uh, would be the IVR or the automated dialing. And then there would be uh, us. So, uh, you know, the live interviewers is the minority right now when we talk about election polling in Canada. Right, right. And in the U.S., IVR is, uh, is a bit on the decline. There have been states that have outlawed it. You have, as I said, the uh, FCC regulations that are probably going to also, you know, make it harder for people to do that. So IVR, which was in vogue for a little while, is now seems to be on the decline. So it's really, you know, a combination of expensive telephone telephone methodologies with extra expensive cell phone piece um, <laughs> plus, you know, or just sort of forcing the, the online polling into the field simply because, you know, that the, 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 the cost differences, people will just have to have to start accepting it and see, see where we end up. Um, it, you know, I don't know if you heard the news yesterday about Gallup deciding that they would not do in U.S. elections um, horse race polling, and they're not sure yet what they're going to do in the general election. Have you seen anything like that in Canada? I mean, have there been outlets that said, you know what, we're just, we're just going to get out of this business? Yeah, well, we've had uh, some of the major players that are still major players get out of the uh, uh, election polling business just because of the cost. And, you know, the other pressure has been uh, many media outlets cannot afford to commission proper research. So it's like buyer beware. It's a bit of a Wild West where they're reporting there are no standards. You know, the one thing that the U.S. has, it's important for your listeners to know, is that the U.S. actually has better standards at the, on the reporting of polling than Canada, that the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and ABC News actually have standards. In Canada, none of the major polling, none of the major media organizations have standards in terms of what they would consider a poll that they would report uh, in the news. Right. So people don't demand, do, you know, do, that they have, you know, certain methodological disclosures in the article or people releasing top lines, cross tabs, that sort of thing. 
That's right. There's actually no rules at all. And if you, if you, you probably American, uh, American polling aficionados would probably be mortified at what's reported in the Canadian news and, uh, and also the, the lack of transparency. Right, right. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, and probably would be a surprise for a lot of folks who always, you know, everyone likes to sort of um, complain. Whatever you disclose here, people will say, well, why didn't you just, you know, there's something else they want to see you disclose. <laughs> there's always, you know, a new hurdle people want you to, to jump over in terms of disclosure. So that's a good point of comparison. C- can you talk to us a little bit about the difference of a national survey in Canada and how that may or may not predict how the seats end up given that they're, we're talking about individual ridings or districts, um, as we might call them here, that those predict uh, the, how the those shake out really predict how the actual who will win the election how the seats work out can you talk about that sort of that polling and that kind of scenario yeah because of the way the electoral system is designed in Canada, it's first past the post which means you just need to have one more vote than another uh another party in order to win the riding people do not directly vote for prime minister or for the government they elect individual ridings and you know the tricky part in canadian elections is that Every time we do a poll, it, it predicts the outcome in terms of the proportion of votes a party receives, but it never, and if I can emphasize, never ever predicts the outcome in terms of the number of seats and the proportion of the victory. So, for example, it's possible for a party uh, to come second in terms of the popular vote and to win a majority because they more efficiently distribute the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's really the tricky part. You know, the other interesting thing about the Canadian, this particular Canadian election, and uh, I've been polling for about 25 years, this, this election has had the greatest number of riding surveys. And I think that's because there have been interests that have been, uh, that want people to strategically vote and that they know that if they run a riding or district survey on the preferences between the Conservatives, the Liberals and the New Democrats, that it actually puts intelligence into the hands of people that might want to strategically vote. It's hard to do that when you see the national numbers from Nanos. Right. But you can't do that when you've got a riding survey in your hands. Right, right, right. Oh, well, that, that, that seems like a good development. I mean, do you feel that people like the press and voters are getting more sophisticated when uh, they cover or talk about polling? Or do you think that there's just simply more noise and armchair pollsters? Uh, well, in my experience, and I think social media has really uh, added to this, is that uh, there are more questions asked, and rightly asked, in terms of how pollsters do things. And uh, I think that's good. Uh, from the media perspective, I think it would be fair to say that many media organizations uh, do not have the same type of resources that they had in the past to triage, evaluate, and report on polls. So it's just they're just under a lot of pressure just to cover a poll and to push it out the door. So that's kind of the dynamic in Canada right now. Mm-hmm. And do you feel, and, and talk to us a little bit about things besides the horse race. I mean, as pollsters will constantly lament that everybody just wants to talk about the horse race, somebody goes up, you know, two points and everybody freaks out without looking at anything else in terms of the climate or what voters care about. It, talk to us a little bit about the role of campaign pollsters, you know, people who work for the individual candidates and what that industry is like, as well as the information about what's driving voters' views. Do people have a good sense from the polls what's going on beneath the surface? Uh, well, yes. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about uh, 
what's happening in Canada is that uh, all of the uh, all of the federal parties have uh, brought in advisors and consultants from outside of Canada, uh, including advisors and consultants from both the Republican and Democratic Party in the uh, parties in the United States. So uh, the level of sophistication in terms of voter targeting through social media and voter engagement in Canada has really been boosted by a lot of the best practices uh, that we've seen in the United States, the United Kingdom, and also Australia. Um, you know, the interesting thing in Canada is that the pollsters for the major parties are, keep a very low profile. We do not see them in the news. Uh, in the past, they were personalities that loomed quite large, kind of like celebrities when you were the pollster for the party. Now they're men and women that are kind of behind closed doors that are doing lots of data mining that you don't really hear about. Huh. So, uh, so that's been a bit of that's been a bit of a change. You know, I think the last celebrity pollster was probably uh, for the Liberals was Michael Marzellini, and before then was Alan Gregg for the Conservatives in the 1980s. Uh, and now it looks like uh, you know the media pollsters, the folks that are in the news every day doing the analysis, have a much higher profile among Canadians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, that's all very interesting. I mean, what do you think is going to be the top issue ultimately driving voters in this election? The old time for a change, <laughs> and uh, you know we track that for our media clients. And uh, you know, right now, time for a change is anywhere between. 65 to 70 percent of the populace and uh, if we were in the u.s that would mean a massive electoral sea change but the reality is is that if 35 percent of canadians say that it's not time for a change it's possible for the conservatives to win the election right and it speaks to kind of the electoral system that we're in but i think as we get to the close of the campaign it's going to be about do canadians want change or do they want to give stephen harper and the conservatives another mandate Right, 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 right. And then if you could talk briefly just to wrap up a little bit about how you got into the business and, you know, advice for other aspiring pollsters out there. Well, it was a fluke. So I actually started the company while I was a university undergraduate student. And uh, one of my uh, father's friends was a local candidate who had asked me to do a poll for him. And uh, from there he asked, he said, I thought he thought I might be good at that. And, uh, and you know, the rest is history. Our big break was in 2004 and 2006 where we started, where in Canada we pioneered nightly tracking in the media. So we were the first company to do that in Canada. And then in two, the 2006 federal election, we predicted the outcome to within one-tenth of one percentage point for wow. all of the parties. Wow. And that kind of uh, put us on the map, so to speak. So. So I always joke it's like a 20-year overnight success. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know the feeling. Somebody called me a fresh face the other day. I'm like, well, I have been doing this for 20 years, but I guess that's good. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a story recently in Politico here in the States about the role of polling in who is going to be in our debates for on the Republican side. As you may know, we have you know, 15 candidates, and you can't fit all those folks on the stage at the same time. So the networks have different approaches of what the cutoff is in terms of polling, and one outlet, the next outlet hosting a debate, has 2.5% as the cutoff. And if you don't make that, then you're not going to be in any debate. There's no consolation prize, smaller debate. And, you know, some say, quite rightly, look, there. this is – you're asking polls to – 
that are designed to measure pounds to actually measure ounces when you have such a firm cutoff. And, and that your story of you know predicting within one tenth of one percent of what you said it was sort of uh, reminds me of that. That that is a level of accuracy that um, that people don't 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 associate with Poland. But sometimes you know we we it does get there. No, exactly. And you know what? On the for the debates in Canada, at least you've got rules. We've got no rules. <laughs> so basically, the 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 main networks negotiate with the federal parties. And for example, in this particular election, there have been party leaders that said they won't do a particular debate. The prime minister has said he wouldn't do debates with the media consortium. And as a result, the other leaders don't do it. So it's there's it's a bit of a a wild west. There's no debate commission. There's no polling that's used to decide who's in the debate or who's not in the debate. It's like day to day and debate to debate. And if someone decides they don't want to show up, then we wait to see whether anyone else will show up for the debate in Canada. Huh. Well, that's interesting. And we think of, you know, at least I think of Canadian politics as being very civilized compared to what we do. A little more genteel. But it's still uh, pretty hard knuckle. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you so much, Nick Nanos. We really appreciate it. And um, thanks for taking the time. We're going to be watching your polls and talking a little bit more about the Canadian election. And maybe we'll have you back after the election to talk about what happened. Super. Okay, thanks. Take care. Thank you. So that was our interview with Nick Nanos from Nanos Research. So excited he could join us. Now we're going to take a little trip to Los Angeles. The L.A. Times is now experimenting with online research. Um, so there's a lot right now that you know we've talked about on the show about the rise of online research, the declines in people picking up uh, their telephones, people cutting the landline, et cetera, et cetera. How do you get good data? Um, and what's fascinating is so many of these media organizations for so long have taken a very strongly kind of purist anti-online survey position. And yet over the course of the last year or two, you've started to see that chip away. NBC, for instance, has started doing their NBC survey monkey polling that right. they'll they'll drop those numbers on Meet the Press. I mean, and it's like, oh, that's survey monkey data. This is a really big shift. Um, I believe the New York Times, which has sort of always been the biggest stickler, at one point was doing some kind of a partnership with YouGov. I, I swore that it was something about the I think it was CBS. Did, CBS, right? Because yes. it's normally there's the CBS New York Times poll. This was separate than um, the CBS YouGov. CBS YouGov, mm-hmm. where they were trying to figure out what are people thinking in all of these congressional districts, you know, doing, I think it was a battleground poll. So these big sort of legacy media organizations are beginning to get more comfortable. The LA Times uh, apparently once detailed in a frequently asked questions piece about polling uh, that they didn't think online surveys were a reliable measure of public opinion, and yet they are changing things. Margie, what's, what's going on? on at the LA Times. Well, so uh, they look to some pollsters, including some folks at GQR, who, uh, Greenberg, Quinlan, and Rosner, who uh, folks we know over there, who uh, advised them on this and said, look, there are pros and cons. You know, it's not that telephones are, are good and online is bad. There are a, a lot of different considerations. Uh, you have fewer people who have uh, who have landlines. You have folks who have cell phones don't answer, particularly younger folks, don't answer the phone if they don't recognize the number. Um, and when you have a drop in response rates, it are, um, it, it does it become a less reliable methodology when you have so many people who are online. You don't have this digital divide problem that, that, uh, that we once had where uh, only some folks are online and other folks are not. And if you're not testing advertising, you're just testing 
uh, you know, basic questions, then you don't have to worry about the speed or the quality of someone's internet connection because it's a much simpler survey, which is what they were doing here uh, for the LA Times. So the other thing too is that this is just for LA County. This isn't a national survey. This is a uh, looking at how folks in LA County feel about getting involved in their community. I think it's. I don't think it's about predicting an election. So that's a little bit different. Um, but they wanted to be transparent, which is what is important for a lot of media outlets to so just be transparent transparent about what their methodology is. They use an opt-in panel. So it's folks who say, yes, sign me up. I'd like to take an online survey. But then you can look at the demographics and make sure you have something representative. And uh, to Kristen's point, you have a lot of outlets who just feel they have to do this now because costs are too high. If you want to do cell phones in particular, which you have to do now, if you want to reach people on their cell phones, the costs are becoming completely prohibitive, especially in conjunction with all the things we've been talking about on the show in terms of the new regulations and, and how you reach folks on cell phones. So if all of the news outlets move together, which they are starting to do, I guess, in, in baby steps, then – they will become more acceptable. And, uh, you know, one of the other things in the memo that the folks at GQR pointed out is that in the U.K., all of the polling is online. I mean, that's something when we talked to Anthony Wells after the U.K. election, all of those polls are done. All those election polls are done online. Uh, so it's something that is increasing. And I think when we looked at the Israeli election, some of those polls were done online. So I think by the time of 2016, the election rolls around, you'll probably see even more outlets rely on online polling for their pre-election stuff. Everybody loves a winner as soon as online polls clearly are proven to be more reliable and accurate than the telephone polls. Then everybody will jump on the bandwagon. Yep. Yep. So (laughs) this story, the next story is interesting research about how do you encourage or I guess what discourages women from going into STEM and science and programming and you've seen this a lot in the culture that there's, you know, news reports about how the culture around tech is not inviting to women in some way, whether it's online harassment or just some sort of bro culture inside tech operations, just discouraging women from from feeling part, feeling welcome and feeling you know interested in the field. And now there's some study about this, some actual research about this, and this is in uh, the New York Times, so again, which we'll, we'll link. And they did – I mean it's a pretty simple study where they uh, had female students interested in enrolling in a class and they measured the interest in enrolling in computer class depending on how they decorated the office and offices that were de- decorated with Star Wars po- posters and science fiction books and computer parts and tech magazines – were less inviting. Women visiting those offices were less interested in computer classes than uh, offices that had art and nature posters, coffee makers, which is funny, plants and general interest magazines. I mean, that really made a difference. They had a similar experiment where they had somebody, an actor wear a T-shirt that says, I code, therefore I am. And that made women... But my favorite part about this is that it, the, the finding held true that women were less interested in signing up for the class after being recruited by someone in an I code, therefore I am shirt, even if the person in the shirt was a woman. Right. So it's not just about not wanting to be around men, sort of techie men. It's something about that caricature, that culture that people say, that's not for me. That's just it's just a group that I don't want to be a part of. That if, the, the idea to me that, you know, you've got uh, even with women – but who women who fit a sort of 
coder, nerdy stereotype that if you make it seem like there's only one way culturally to be in computer science, right? Um, that to me, that even have you, you can't just solve the problem by having women do the recruiting if the women look different, right? Then. And and drawing a sort of weird parallel to politics here, I think this is in some ways kind of a similar to the Republican problem where everybody goes, well, but you guys are the party of old white men. It's like, well, no, we have women. We have we have folks from minority communities. But if the women you put forward are like they have the perfect blonde hair and the pearls, like that's not relatable. So mm-hmm. that's I mean, that's the Republican equivalent of the woman in the I code, therefore I am shirt. Right. Where you're going like, um, I'm glad that you are a woman in tech, but Maybe not so much for me. That's right. People want to feel like there's something that they can relate to, whether it's in class or just in a you know their social milieu, or whether it's uh, whether it's a you know political party. So that makes a lot of sense to me, and it's interesting. Fine, I don't know if that means that there are going to be a lot of computer labs that are going to change their decor by adding coffee makers and plants and. And art posters, but it seems like an easy fix if that really makes a difference. It seems like, you know, not a big lift to do that. You will take my Queen Amidala poster from my cold, (laughs) dead hands, Margie. (laughs) How did they not have a coffee maker before? That's what I don't understand. Like, that just seems... Because they're drinking cruel. Red Bull. They're wired in. Yeah. They're ma- it's Mountain Dew. It's Mountain Dew. They're doing the Dew. Yeah. No, no coffee maker is a deal breaker for me, no matter what T-shirt everybody's wearing. So this final story that we're going to talk about, I cracked up when I read it. So Carmaker Ford surveyed uh, just over 2,000 children aged 7 through 12 in Europe. And they asked what annoys them most about car journeys and how their parents handle stress in the car. And so the countries they surveyed, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the U.K., the number one complaint from kids about their parents is that their parents sing while driving. I believe that. <laughs> I've had this Guilty complaint. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I've had this complaint. And then the second big complaint they had was that their parents would get angry and use naughty words hmm. out behind the wheel. <laughs> also, guilty as charged. That's tough. That's tough. My morning commute would not be approved for our iTunes clean-rated show. Yes. Every no, so I... often. Um it's a frustrating drive. It's a frustrating drive. I feel justified. But I, I, I laughed when I saw that this this was the um, – these were the two biggest complaints kids have about their parents. And I was, I was amazed that French parents were considered the worst offenders for using naughty words. I mean I don't know which group I would have pe- pegged, but I wasn't – it didn't seem to me that France would be the slam dunk. And we need to talk a little bit about this nose-picking situation. So <laughs> nose-picking is also a gripe that many children listed as something that they hate that their parents do, understandably. Uh, apparently, parents in the – or kids in the UK were most likely to choose nose-picking as the worst parental habit. I mean, that seems like they're paying very close attention to their parents, good which I guess is, is a good thing. But yeah, I someone told me a story about a kid who was, you know, two or three, who was just cursing and just, you know, happy, happy as a clam, cursing. And mom said, what are you doing, my sweet cherub? And she's like, driving. Because that, that was how she had seen her parents oh, drive. And so for my. her, sense of driving was just to curse. <laughs> when I was a Out child, by the way, so I had a I had a speech impediment up until about the time I was in the first grade, and I couldn't say THs, CHs, or SHs particularly well. And according to my parents, who have only recently unveiled this revelation to me, 
when I was around three or four years old, every time I would say thank you, <laughs> it didn't sound like I was saying thank you. And lots of strangers <laughs> would like look at my parents like, what How? What have you done in raising this child? Oh, my God. That sounds so, so funny. God, I would have loved that. Fun fact. <laughs> I also swore my name was Snow White. I could so, pronounce that. So how long did they enjoy that before they ta- said, okay, now we need to get her to say thank you properly? Because this was this is funny. But, you know, after two or three years. Maybe I, we I don't know. I mean, I did. I, I went into speech therapy in kindergarten and came out the other side. That's good. And now I'm I'm a pundit, and here I have a podcast. That's good. That's good. And so. we have a clean rating. We haven't heard you say any <laughs> curse words, so it all worked out. So curse at home, and you'll have a bright future ahead of you, I think. Oh, maybe my. Cor- maybe correlation doesn't imply causation here. So, Margie, what were the key findings this week? So the key findings, Democratic debate, it, 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 who the winner is depends on who you ask insiders or voters. Uh, TPP, not sure that that's going to be the big vote driver. Um, For Republicans, a sleepy week, but still a strong week for Carson. Um, And curse if you like, just make sure your kids are not listening. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at at the pollsters. You can find us individually at at Margie O'Mero and at Kay Soltis Anderson. We are also on Facebook where we post throughout the week fascinating polls and other findings that we've come across. You can find us at thepollsters.com and you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you prefer. Great. Thanks and see you next week. Have a great week.